Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. It becomes a burden, but it's almost like an ember on a fire, you know, that just starts at flame. And that burden becomes the passion, the drive, the momentum, enthusiasm, the excitement, you know, all of that kind of comes together. But we also have very prescriptive ways that we go about everything. It's all about building a plan, clear, definable, and measurable goals. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. Today, I'm speaking with Pat Lawler. Pat is the CEO of Youth Villages. Youth Villages is a nationally recognized leader in children's mental and behavioral health. Youth Villages started 35 years ago as a merger between two 40-person residential campuses and now reaches 24 states with 100 locations and has over 3,000 associates around the country. Youth Villages is known as one of the nation's most promising results-oriented nonprofits as recognized by Harvard Business School, U.S. News and World Report, and the White House. This episode is filled with insights and understanding on what's being done to address major challenges in our world today. We talk having clarity early on, the impact your work makes, how to frame setbacks, why relationships matter, the burden that he and others feel about their work, the threats passion can create in your personal life, using data and acting on it using local work to solve national problems, and more. I hope you enjoy this week's episode with Pat Lawler. Hey, everybody. I have one last quick cool company to tell you about. Are you like a majority of Americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to? If you do, then I bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org. Havenspace lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. Go to havenspaces.org, that's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S.org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast because I know it'll make your life better and they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. I saw that your first job in the field that you're in today was when you were 17 years old. Is that correct? 
actually, I had just turned 18. It was my eight, I was offered the job at 17, uh, but I turned 18 on July 24th, uh, 1973. So uh, I, I couldn't start until I turned 18. It was a week or two later after I was offered the job at a place called Tall Trees Guidance School in, in uh, out on Lamar Avenue. So it was a, uh, a residential program for delinquent boys. And your early role model there was a gentleman named Bill Key. Is that right? That's right. Bill Key was actually a volunteer football coach uh, in the summer of 1970. And so uh, at a football camp. So I got to know him that summer. And, you know, he would come to our games over the years and offered me a job after graduating high school to work at this, to work and live. In this. You had to live there, too, by the way. You, you know, you lived there and worked there. It was uh, in an old building. At old, I think old mental health hospital out on Lamar Avenue here. Uh, it was a residential program. The boys lived there, and uh, there was a gym there as well. And the, uh, and the boys went to regular school during the daytime. But yeah, that's where. And I had a room there with two other. We were called college counselors, and we lived with these thirty-one boys, and we were responsible for them on the weekends and evenings. You know, taking care of them. And I read that your father, who I know you're naming a new facility after, if it's not already completed, it it is going to be completed. Is that correct? Yeah, it was completed about a, a little over a year ago. Okay, sorry. A little late on that research. But I read that he was an orphan growing up. Is that correct? He was. My father was born in 1930. And about the age of five and a half, he was put into an orphanage uh, a few years after his mother died. His father was uh, farming and really couldn't take care of him. And like a lot of kids, when a parent dies, they get passed around to relatives for a few years. They decided they couldn't take care of him anymore and put him in an orphanage in, in Belleville, Illinois, St. John's Orphanage in Belleville, Illinois. It was a Catholic orphanage, and uh, he was there about five and a half, six years, and it was not a very good experience. Yes, sir. I've heard you talk about how good of a family you had growing up. Is that true? Great family, wonderful parents, you know, an older brother, younger brother. Our life was built around school, our church, our sports activities, our scouting, you know, community, family, neighborhood, you know, wonderful family. Yeah, all the Everything you could ask for. I'm just curious how that made such an impact with you. And I'm sure you've talked about this a ton with your staff and other speeches. I have watched a few of your things like at Harvard, um, at the Kennedy School. You know, I watched that in its entirety yesterday. But it seems like you could have done a lot of things. And it seems like you had a great upbringing. And it seems like you had options. And I think it's rare at 18 years old to kind of have that clarity or at least have that courage to kind of be that decisive that early on. So I'm just curious as much as you'll share on that, how did that and why did it create such an impact to you at a certain age? Cause when you look back on your life, it's, it's quite a story up to this point. Well, it really wasn't very decisive at the age of 18. And, uh, you know, I, I really didn't give much thought to, to my father growing up in orphanage. I took that job. I took that job because I, I was going to be able to move out of my house at 18 years old and live in. <laughs> okay, that's, that's the primary reason I took that job. Now, I did like working with kids. I loved sports. I knew they had a gym there. And I loved and thought the word of Bill Key. So, you know, I could live independently. I could get paid a little bit of money. I had a gym and a bunch of boys that were about my age I could play sports with all day and, you know, hang out with and, and go to school, college in the morning time. It was more about that than it was me thinking about a career path at that time. Yes, sir. And I know for people that listen to this outside of Memphis and listen outside, you know, different parts of the United States and other parts of the world, Bishop Burns, obviously a high school here outside of Memphis, Tennessee, where, and that's where the headquarters for Youth Villages is. And that's where I live. And that's where Pat lives. But 
I'm just curious, were you a great athlete at Bishop Byrne, a good athlete? What was that? How much was sports part of your life at that time? I was a pretty good athlete. We had a lot of really good athletes uh, on our teams, but yeah, I was okay. So you literally took the job. You didn't really know why. It was a way for you to be there, get out of the house, make money, pour into kids and, and be around the gym and go to college. That's the reason. Pretty much it. <laughs> That's right. And then your next position after that was at the juvenile court, correct? Right. I worked at Tall Trees for 13 months. Then uh, I was offered a position at juvenile court working the midnight shift uh, in boys' detention. I, I worked there for five and a half years, but two years on midnight shift at boys' detention, so I could attend school during the day. Then I worked two years on the midnight shift as an intake counselor. So I worked the midnight shift for four years during undergraduate school. Then I became a probation counselor uh, after I graduated my undergraduate school uh, at the juvenile course. I worked there five and a half years total. Has anything clicked by that time, or were you still just kind of charging ahead? And No, you know, I really like uh, working with kids. And uh, uh, I remember going for an interview, and uh, it was for a company that sold tools. And uh, about 30 minutes into the interview, the guy looks at me and said, you don't want to sell tools, do you? And I go, no, sir, I don't want to sell tools. And so I basically, <laughs> right after that, decided to go to graduate school and get a degree in counseling. Uh, to, to continue work with young people. But my actually, my undergraduate degree was in criminal justice, and my goal was to become an FBI agent. But uh, I learned after I graduated from undergraduate school that only FBI agents that were accepting, or the only applications that were accepted were people that had an accounting degree, a law degree, or previous military experience. And I, I said, I guess I should have checked that out for <laughs> major in criminal justice. But so then uh, I love working at Juvenile Court. I love working with kids and decided to go back and get a degree in counseling. A master's in counseling. Yes, sir. Are you glad you did that looking back? Oh, yeah, I really am. Because when I learned that the juvenile court judge and a couple others were targeting me for an opportunity for a new job, one of the things that they told me that they were impressed with that I had gone back to school and was working on my master's degree. I hadn't finished my master's at the time I got the job. I had one more course left. I had to pass a comprehensive final. But that was one of the reasons they were interested in, in me in this new job. Yes, sir. I'm curious. I know there's different methods of counseling and different methods of behavior and, and recovery and, and how those interventions are created and how we all progress in our own way. But I'm curious, early on, did you kind of have any clarity on any specific principles or kind of foundational truths of the counseling that, that you studied that you still like apply today? You know, early on, the one thing that I knew was I was drawn to the most troubled kids. I was really drawn to kids with the biggest problems. I remember tall trees, I can name with you the four or five kids that had severe mental health problems, developmental disabilities, uh, horrible abuse and neglect issues, even at Juma Court, same way. A kid would come in late at night, terribly troubled. I probably was supposed to, you know, do the, follow the procedure, put him to bed. I'd probably sit up and talk to him for an hour, just hear how they were doing. I like building relationships with young people. I like having an understanding of what their underlying kind of issues were versus the real behavior that they were, you know. I guess, experiencing that people were seeing. So early on, I was always curious of what the drivers were that would cause them to act in a particular way. And do you feel like, and obviously maybe even still today, that was just drastically overlooked? Uh, yeah. You know, I think most of the intervention in those days were about control, punishment, you know, not at all focusing on strengths and not at all focused on better understanding what the real issues were. You never heard the words like trauma. Those weren't common terms whatsoever. It was more, 
I'm the adult, you're the child, you behave in a certain way or you're going to suffer consequences. And you felt like you created a lot of breakthroughs when you actually would stay up late or get to know the individual and try to peel the layers back and understand maybe what they had been through or what, where they were coming from. Yeah, I don't know if breakthrough is right, but it, it gave me a better understanding of uh, what seemed to cause these conditions in this young person's life for them to behave in a certain way or act out in a certain way. <laughs> yes. Were you an advocate of change or were you an advocate of social issues and things like that in high school? Because I know I've heard you talk about some of your heroes, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, yeah. Nelson Mandela, et cetera. But even the way you're talking about this right now, you seem a lot more interested in causes and change than even myself. Like, and I, and I, I think a lot of times we go through the day thinking about ourselves, but this is really unique here. And you kind of pull this back a little bit and talk about, you know, where your energy was stewarded towards and passion about even from an early age? You know, I, I don't know that I was so passionate about causes. I'm not sure there were. I'm not sure any of us were involved in causes so much growing up like that. But I do know that when I would see other kids being bullied or, uh, you know, a lot of times older students, especially playing sports, would treat younger students unfairly, uh, including me, uh, not necessarily abusive, but uh, inappropriate. And that troubled me greatly. Uh, and I know that. And when I became, you know, a senior, there were a few of us that said, we're not going to let this, we're not going to do this to the younger uh, athletes on our, on our sports team. So we're not going to allow this to happen in this locker room. Were you a popular guy in high school? I don't know. Average, I guess, you know, you, you play sports and, uh, you know, I, I guess. Well, <laughs> I that might be a weird question, but I'm just saying like, in that instance, you know, sticking up for these other men and women, uh, young men and women, et cetera. I was just curious kind of what that was like. I don't know that it was so much sticking up for people, but just saying that we weren't going to, we weren't going to let this happen. You know, you know, this is, you know, we're seniors this year and we know how other seniors treated us and we're not, we're just not going to, we're not going to tolerate that kind of behavior. Yes, sir. Curious. Do you think these kind of, values that you have or and had would you look back on your mom and dad and say that it was very influential how they raised you to think that way or stick up for the convictions that you had yeah my parents were we were we were very uh, organized family and uh church was very very important to us you know making your bed cleaning up your room helping with chores cutting the grass raking leaves we you know we all worked uh, to make our life, you know, I guess, pleasant. And uh, and my parents were always supportive of other people in the neighborhood that had problems and, and and how they would help and support them. So my parents were very good with managing money. They were good at managing time. And they did nothing outside of our family. I never remember my parents. I remember one time going to a fundraising event for a high school where they left us alone growing up as kids. Other than that, we were always together. They never got babysitters and went to a movie or Went out to dinner. There was we were always together as a family. So yeah, there were clear. I mean, we 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 had clear standards, clear expectations, and uh, I think all that you know created a, a strong foundation for all three of uh, us kids. Looking back, your dad was able to take his experience as painful as that sounded, even though you didn't go there much. But and he was totally able to, from a generational standpoint move the needle on how he invested y'all and raised the family. 
because he didn't have a family for so many years. And uh, actually, when he was 11, his father remarried and they came and got him out of the orphanage. And he later had two younger brothers. Family was very, very important to my father and and mother as well. But so he was uh, devoted entirely to his, his wife and his three boys, as well as my mom. And yeah, I think I think his his, I guess, uh, poor experiences growing up made a difference in, in how he raised us. I'm curious, how has it been for you personally to be on such a wild ride from a professional standpoint, from a, a service standpoint, from the size and scope of Youth Villages, where family meant so much to you and still does, I would assume, early on, and your CEO, you know, of a organization that has close to, the last time I checked, 3,500 associates started with nine and you're in 72 different locations is what I saw. And Youth Villages has a lobbyist in DC on and on and on, all from the humble beginnings of, you know, non-associates when it sounded like two small organizations merged when you stepped in and, and took over leadership and then we ain't gotten there. But if you go back to the basics, what's that been like for you from a family standpoint? Everybody that's ever led any organization, especially, you know, from the start, it's a, uh, it's, 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 you know, it becomes your family. I mean, your work becomes your family and your family knows that throughout the entire time. And it's, you know, there's a lot of times when I was not a very good parent because I wasn't around a lot in the early days and, and, you know, even as we expanded traveling, but, you know, they have to be very supportive. And I've been very, very fortunate to have a very supportive family, but there have been, you know, ups and downs. But uh, we used to joke about early on that, you know, our, you know, my kids, I said, you know, I don't just have two kids. I've got 42 kids and uh, they would spend a lot of time with me on the campus. My son went on some trips with us, you know, with some of the kids. Uh, I brought kids home on the weekends, on holidays. It was not uncommon me to have three or four kids with me, you know, staying at the house on the weekends or holidays. And so what you're saying is you, you don't do it perfectly, but I would guess eventually you, you kind of feel it and you understand that it's there. And then you try to work through it when you have so much passion and drive about something you care so much about. Yeah. I think that you know, everybody has to make sacrifices and the sacrifices are just as great for the family as they are for myself, as well as other staff that work in this field. I mean, look, we have 7,200 kids today, actually 7,236 kids. And we're responsible for those kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and we hold ourselves accountable. So that means we're all on call 24-7. And uh, when bad things happen, we get those phone calls. And so we have to be prepared to respond. And our goal is to try not to have bad things happen. But like I said, there's a lot of young people and families we work with uh, have a lot of challenges. And we have a great group of team of staff. Uh, but sometimes, you know, there, there are problems and we have to be prepared to respond. You've talked about church. We haven't talked much about what that's like from an adult standpoint. And I'm, I know church and faith are, depending on one's beliefs, they don't always mean the exact same thing. But I'm just curious, what's it like from your standpoint and the professionals that you work with that you've seen where you feel the gravity, you feel the weight, you feel what can go wrong, you can feel that call in the middle of the night, and you know you can't control the outcomes to a certain extent, I would imagine you can only, you know, control what you can control, but what's it like living with that responsibility day in, day out? First of all, faith 
is very important and not just have the grounding of, of faith, the, your faith, but also uh, the grounding of why you're here, understanding why you're here and what your roles and responsibilities are, especially when you're responsible for other people's children, as well as families as, and as well as staff. But faith gives you the, uh, it gives you the ability to be prepared for those challenges. Okay, so I got a call this Sunday, two o'clock Sunday afternoon, that we learned a young person that we were caring for had died. And this young person was one of the end of our community-based programs, but the state had recently put him in a group home. And another young man in the group home had apparently brought some drugs in that day and gave to this young man, and he had died. So, you know, those are terrible phone calls to get. But unfortunately, sometimes that happens. And that's when you, you know, you say a quiet prayer for the child and their family. You know, you, you talk to the leadership staff and make sure they're supporting their team. Uh, but, um, you know, like I said, in this work, a lot of wonderful things happen, but also sometimes bad things happen. You've also got to be grounded enough to say, you know, we, we need to ask ourselves, what could we have done differently to help this young person? What could we have known to prevent this, you know, from happening? So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's all about and you've got to have a commitment to overcoming whatever comes your way. You know, you can never say, you know, I'm tired of this. You've always got to be hopeful, too, that you can you can make things better and you can make a, a favorable difference in people's lives. You can't ever have doubts. I mean, it's not that you don't have doubts, but they've got to be momentarily doubts, not long term doubts. I heard you tell a story. There was a I'm not sure if it was a governor, senator, congressman or even maybe somebody else. But you talked you, you were talking about persistence and you talked about being lovingly persistent. And you told them that you will be back every single week until y'all get what you need. Did I hear that story correctly? Yeah. Actually, what I told him was, I said, I'm relatively young. And, uh, you know, we are very persistent and patient. And we will be back every week until we get your support. And, and basically, not long after he was replaced and the new person supported his story. And it was really, we were trying to get government funding to support community-based services and working with families in the community to prevent kids from being removed from their families versus putting kids in foster care and residential programs. Yes. Yes, sir. I'm just curious, is there a connection the way that you see it between patience and persistence, but also when you have clarity on what it is you really feel like you're supposed to be locked in on to go back to, you know, what we were just talking about? Yeah. You know, I mean, patience, persistence make a little difference if you don't have that clarity. I mean, once we, are, uh, when I say we, I mean, this entire organization that once we move in a certain direction, we've done all of our homework. We've done the research. Uh, we've talked to the national experts. Uh, we've kicked the tires, looked at other programs. You know, we've found what we believe is the best direction for us to go based on all the available data and information. And once we're there, we're not turning back. Now, that doesn't mean we might change the course direction somewhat, but time is an ally. <laughs> You know, and so we uh, we we have a strong sense of urgency, and we will go about things professionally, uh, but uh, we will not be deterred because someone doesn't like it or doesn't like us or has a different opinion. Now we'll be respectful of their opinions, and one of the hardest things to do is help change the way people think. And many things that we've done over the years is really helping people change the way they believe about what's best way to help a young person or family. And so that takes time. 
you're a professional. At least that's the way you come across an executive, a CEO, uh, a leader uh, that moves a fast growing organization that is rooted in its purpose. I've even heard you say you are clear in the way you articulate it, not for profit business. <laughs> like you clearly identified it. So I'm just curious, is there a weight of the problem that you feel that drives your urgency to where if somebody's saying, hey, you're moving too fast, when you and your team feel like y'all have clarity, so it's like you're locked in, does that drive you in that way? I have two kind of, I don't know what they are, but I'm very high energy. I mean, I can go all day and go for days at a time. And so I have a, a somewhat of an obsessive compulsive gene when I'm focused on something. And, and that can go for years, not days. So it really is just natural for me to be that way and constantly, you know, asking questions, but, but we have a team of leadership people that are much the same way. So, and I've got a board of directors that are much the same way. These people have a sense of urgency. Uh, these people want to make a difference. Uh, these people have been successful in their lives and, and not just ambitious uh, personally, but ambitious for the entire community to make a meaningful difference in moving the needle and not just serving a few, a few kids, but thousands of kids and families. So, you know, it's not just me. It's it's all of us feel this way. And when you've got that kind of support, we're all moving together simultaneously with variety of, of experiences and backgrounds and education. And you've been working so closely together for so long while bringing along some additional associates and leadership positions over the years with new eyes and new experiences. It, it, it really, it just makes it more, more of a natural approach to the way we do things than anything really unique or different to us. I know other people are going to run their organization the way they want to run it. But I guess what I'm hearing you say is anyone that's involved with what you're doing and what you are doing and, and the board and who's been along this entire time, they have a burden and they have a passion to create as big of an impact as you can. And that's what drives the alignment. And that's what drives the clarity. And that's what drives the momentum because then a lot of people are putting up a lot of dollars too and using their relationships, et cetera, to gain grants and everything else to really make this happen. Is that correct? You probably used the best word of this entire conversation, the burden. It, 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 becomes, a, uh, it becomes a burden, but it's almost like an ember on a fire, you know, that just starts that flame. And that burden becomes the passion, the drive, the momentum, the enthusiasm, the excitement, you know, all of that kind of comes together. But we also have very prescriptive ways that we go about everything. It's all about building a plan, clear, definable, and measurable goals, holding people accountable. Uh, so it's, it's like I said, we have systematic approaches about the way we go about everything. And it's all driven by data, analysis, information, best practices, talking to the experts, uh, and, and being curious and testing some new things. And that's kind of what it's all about. And everybody has a role uh, and understands their role and, you know, all of us, you know, we all work seven days a week. We're all available all the time. And some of the greatest ideas I get from staff come at odd hours of night and day, weekends or holidays, you know, email, sex. And so, you know, you don't, it's nice to work with an organization where people are always thinking, you know, and uh, now that doesn't mean they don't take time for their families, but people here, all of us, I'm talking about volunteers and and, and mentors and board members and foster families, they, they seem to have uh, a relentless drive 
to try to make things better for other people. Would you say a lot of the key people that are there for you that help you help the organization, was there something in their own personal experience that makes them feel so strongly about the cause of Youth Villages? Or do you also feel that it's not always that way and sometimes people just want to be generous? I'm curious, how, how have you seen that play out in the data that you built in your own head? We have a combination. We have some people that have some personal experiences growing up that have made them especially uh, great at what they're doing. But we've had a lot of people that, you know, live pretty normal lives like me and you know, <laughs> had good family and that are a lot better educated than I am. We, we have all kind of people that lead this organization. But I think, you know, we do have a, a good team of people and that our, at our, our interests, our personalities, our engagement skills seem to come together uh, to move this organization forward. I think there's a variety of experiences, yeah. For those of us that haven't spent a lot of time understanding Youth Villages or the, the space that you're in specifically, can you just, from a high level, talk about the pain that these young boys and girls are experiencing, have experienced, and that you're helping them recover from to help them reestablish their life? Yeah, most of these young people are overcoming tremendous circumstances. I mean, horrible abuse, horrible neglect, poverty, lack of any kind of what you and I would consider normal parental support. Many of these families have long histories of drug and alcohol problems, mental health problems, uh, domestic violence problems, paying their bills, maybe having much of a formal education themselves as parents or grandparents. And so they're just overwhelmed and overcome by life's circumstances. And obviously the impact it has on a young person is traumatic. And so, you know, the, the level of physical and sexual abuse you hear about sometimes is just, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling, but also just uh, neglect and uh, uh, emotional abuse uh, that scars young people and families. And uh, it, you know, that's why our staff here, you know, we have almost a thousand staff with master's degree, more than degrees, more than a hundred uh, licensed staff. Almost all of our staff, I'd say 97, 98% have bachelor's degrees, very, you know, educated folks in this work. And, you know, to really make a difference in working with a young person or family, you know, you know, you have to be, I mean, not just passionate about this work. This has to be almost your life as much as your work to move people because you can't go home at five o'clock and just, put your feelings aside when you dealt with a troubled family. You know, you're going to bed at night thinking, how can I help this family anymore? What could I have done differently? Who can I ask for some help to support this family better? You know, it doesn't just go away at, at, at the end of the day. Of course, our days are longer and involve more than eight to five kind of schedules. But, you know, it, to really, I mean, it just, I think it's the same way in all of our lives. To really help someone, you have to give a lot of yourself. Has there ever been a season in your own life where the pain felt so strong that you almost didn't know if you could continue in, in the work? Never. No, not a moment. So any, any pain, any, any call, any news, anything financial, if there was a commitment, a pledge or whatever, didn't come through, didn't know payroll, anything. It's just, you know, it, it, it always, uh, you know, it's interesting. In the early days we had no money, but when someone said no to me, about a money, it meant, it meant in my head it was not now or maybe later. <laughs> when uh, when we failed with a young person, it was what can we learn from this so it doesn't happen again? Yeah, I mean, there's been disappointment, 
but uh, it was it was momentarily. What what did I learn from this? <laughs> what did we learn from this? What could we have done differently? Approached you know the the funder differently or the government differently or how can we you know it's it's always you know try to make it a learning experience. And truthfully, I learned much more from failure than I ever have from success. I think I read a, a statement that wherever we trip, we find a treasure. <laughs> We've tripped a lot over the years, I can assure you. But you know, we just uh, we learn from that and move on. I mean, that's when you're in the res- responsibility of other people, you just can't give up. And I don't think those words ever enters our, 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 our thinking. I know you a minute ago you were describing very clearly the experiences, the pain that the young men and women that that y'all serve that that they experience and what they've gone through. I'm curious. I also know that y'all have your approach that you believe is rooted in data and is effective. And there's a lot of literature out there about youth villages and your approach. But one of the things that you've been adamant about and youth villages have been adamant about is keeping people with families. Uh, at least that's, you know, what I've I read over and over again. I'm curious on this path to recovery, on this path to security and stability, when it happens, why is keeping the person with their family why is that key and crucial? First of all, we all need a support system. All of us need a support system. And we found, and literature shows that our own experiences are, your best support system is your family. Your family. Obviously, it's ideal if it's your natural family, but foster family, adoptive family, maybe a close neighbor friend that you call your aunt, aunt or uncle or cousin, and they're really not your blood relatives, are very, very important. And I've not found one person that's ever been happy or successful in their life without a family person that supports them fully. And, and I think that the data reflects that and just people meet along the way. <laughs> we, we all have to have those kind of support systems. And, and we know it's critical for a young person, especially in those formative years, to have those support systems. And y'all are doing work with not just the child, but with their parents simultaneously. Is that correct? Actually, in all of our community-based programs, 80% of the work is with the adults in the home, not with the children. I mean, the, once the adults in the home can get their lives together and manage their, uh, themselves, they're much more effective at, at being a responsible adult and, and a better parent. So kind of hopping around, but there's always nuggets and talking points that come up, you know, when we're having this free-flowing conversation. But I'm curious, so going back to the early beginning, can you describe after you were at the juvenile court, and you were working night shift and going through the university. Can you talk about what happened in your late 20s and, and where the genesis of Youth Villages came from and kind of what those first few early years were like? You know, when I was offered the job to come to, it was called Dogwood Village. It was January of 1980. I was actually being asked to just go out there and quietly close it down. I was actually the third executive. There would have been, it only been open a year. And the, the first executive director was fired. And the second executive director was having a lot of problems. And I was asked just to go out there and quietly close it down. And I said, well, what's going on? They said, well, the kids are about taking over the place. Of course, I'd seen the news reports in the paper and on the radio and TV. Uh, the board, most of the board, your board of directors have uh, resigned. You're about to lose your license and you don't have a budget. Well, I had no idea what a board of directors was. I had never seen a budget. And uh, I didn't understand why you would need a license for anything. And so I said, I got this. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I read a quote years ago that kind of reminded me of me in those days. It's 
I'm not young enough to know everything anymore. You know, when you're 24 years old, you know, you think you got, you got this, you know, but it obviously was much more complicated than I knew at the time. But, you know, with uh, Bill Key, he was still a mentor during that period of time, you know, helped me along the way. And we had a, another good staff member there named Leo Coughlin. Uh, you know, we were able to, to sort through it all and figure it out. But we only imagined having a, one small residential program for 40 young people. Uh, that We started out with 25 young people. But that was the goal. And then in 1986, another program in Memphis closed called Memphis Boys Town. And they came to us asking for help. And we agreed to a merger. And then that was really just we we're going to have two residential programs, each campus with 40 kids each. That was all we ever dreamed of. I mean, and this was in 1986, and we could barely pay the bills and take care of those kids and facilities and staff and and all. So never really thought much more uh, about growing until, until the early 90s when the overwhelming number of kids kept being referred to us. And that's when we started looking at, we did some research, which led us to start thinking about working in the community and the homes of young people versus trying to bring the young people to our residual programs. Yes, sir. So by that point, were you in your early 30s? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, I guess I was uh, 31, 32 during that period of time. And what was the first place called? Dog? Did you say Dogwood? It was called Dogwood Village. And that was uh, that was in uh, January of 1980. I was 24. In the late 80s is when we started really exploring possibly uh, doing something differently other than just residential programs because we were collecting outcome data. And the outcomes of our kids were, weren't very good from our residual program. We started asking ourselves, well, why are our kids doing so poorly? What we found when the kids leaving our residual program to go in the community, they became a reflection of what the people they were living with, what they were doing. And, you know, families had a lot of problems. And so we said, you know, we started looking at the research and data and saying, well, what if we went, started working with the families? And so in 1994, January of 94, we started working intensely with families with a model called multi-systemic therapy. And that changed the direction of our entire organization. So that's when you had the two locations right there. Yeah. In 86, we had the two locations. But like I said, even though we had two locations, we started tracking our young people in the, after they left our residential programs, they weren't doing that well. So that's when we started asking ourselves, how can we help prevent young people from ever being removed from their families in the first place? And that's how we started this trajectory. And we went through kind of an epiphany of sort between 1993 and 95 where before 1993, we believe we were in the business of raising other people's children. But by 1995, we decided that children were raised best by their families, and we need to start trying to support families primarily. Yes, sir. And how did that data swing when you made that change? When we first started collecting data in, uh, in, in 86, 87, our outcomes were about 50% of the kids were living at home one year after they left our program, were going to school or working and weren't in trouble with the law not back in child welfare or juvenile justice custody. In the early 90s, our, our collection methods became more sophisticated. Our outcomes uh, were 63%. And today, one year post-discharge after kids leave our programs, right at 90% of them are living at home, successful, going to school or working. So our, they've slowly just improved over the years as we've improved and developed new programs and services. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service, 
with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. I found it encouraging watching you speak and being interviewed before because you talked about this very openly as a lesson learned in a very professional environment, to say the least. Could you talk more about that experience? Because you, I've heard you talk before about it wasn't a failure, but it was charging 100 miles an hour, raising money. You're going on this clear path, and then you think through a better way of doing it. Not everybody's on board. You even talked about how when you were essentially making this pivot, leading in a different direction, there were people there that you said were agreeing with their head, but not with their heart. And you told them it wasn't going to work. They needed to move on. So it sounded like a very significant moment. And obviously the data that you just articulated communicates the outcome, the, 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 the benefit of that decision. But I'm curious, can you talk about what that was like for you as a leader in your mid thirties or, you know, this, whatever specific age you were, make a decision maybe have opposition to it, maybe have raised dollars, but then having to move it in a different direction. And then, but once you have clarity, moving forward, you know, with energy and passion, like we've talked about earlier. I entered this work in 1973 at 18. And from 1973 to 1993, I believe that residential treatment was close to the silver bullet as you could get. All of us in that period of time believe that putting a kid in a residential treatment program was the best way to help a young person, remove them from the community, the school, their families, which everybody thought was the source of the problem for 20 years. I believe that until I was 38 years old, as well as all the people I worked with, as well as most people worked in juvenile courts, judges, referees. But the data reflected something much different. Our data, as well as national data, that said that, you know, the best way to help a young person is help their family. Kids that get in trouble are primarily, they're primarily three predictors. One, there's conflict in the home. You know, people aren't getting along. There's no organization. There's no structure. Um, there's no family leadership in the home. At school, they perform poorly in school. They're failing. They're suspended. Uh, they're expelled. And then the third and most important area of a young person's life is their peer group. And our work in residual treatment had no impact on the school they were going to in the community when they left our program, on their family, or on their peer group. And as soon as we started working with those groups of people, our outcome rates started skyrocketing, improving dramatically. So you weren't satisfied. You started looking at the most important drivers of the outcomes. You right. doubled down on that. You and your team or you had a strategy to hit those head on and then y'all went with it. Yeah, well, we tested it first. I was still suspect and uh, Dr. Tim Goldsmith was still suspect, but we had a young man named Lee Roan at the time who'd been doing some of the research. We often called him the blank slate. Uh, he went to Vanderbilt, uh, got his MBA there. Uh, he was not in this field. We asked him to do some research and he was the first one that came back and asked us to, to consider this. And so as we started exploring the research, 
we actually considered his recommendation uh, over a year or two. We found out very clearly it was a much more effective way to work with young people. Question about you personally. Do you think you could work this hard and be so driven for other professions, other careers, other occupations? Nah, I don't see. <laughs> I, look, I applaud other people that do their work, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I can never imagine working in any field outside of this field. And I, I mean, I, I'm sure every corporation has, you know, people that care about their work, but I, I could never work outside of this field. Yes, sir. Just sounds like a lot of nights and weekends to say the least and painful calls, et cetera. Uh, like Sunday afternoon, two o'clock, like you said. And well, you know, they say this look, there are occasionally painful calls, but there's thousands more good experiences every day than there are all those painful calls. Know that. But, uh, but, you know, I like working. And then, and I've, I'm, I think I've gotten better at balancing, you know, work with a, a personal life, but that's been a struggle at times. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to get something out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> when you, when you, you know, at nights or on weekends, uh, it's just, but, but, uh, you know, I take vacations here and there and, and I have time to you know take a break. So going back to that change and the person that did the research for you, you tested it, you moved, were y'all the early adopters on that? We were the first ones to take a model called multi-systemic therapy out of clinical trials. Uh, it was in clinical trials, University of South Carolina, South Carolina medical school. We're the first ones to take that model outside of clinical trials. And then years later, we developed our own model while we still use multi-systemic therapy as well. Yes, we were, we, we were kind of early adopters to that. And this ties into other things that I bet we'll get to. But just in general, like with that, if the data and the evidence is, you know, right in front of you or, if, you know, other objectives, other topics, et cetera, why, just in general, why is change so hard and what do you have to do if you're wanting something or you're trying to get something approved, what are the things that you have to address every time to create change when you're dealing with people? Well, first of all, you got to change yourself and you have to be open to change. Okay. That was the first thing we had to do ourselves was be open to change. But uh, I, I think you have to understand where other people are coming from first and to understand where another person gets their beliefs that something should be the way it is or some way to take care of kids should be the way it should be is first off what we found we had to do. And you couldn't just throw it in people's face. You had to bring them along slowly. It's better to bring people along while you're doing the research or while you're learning versus waiting until you think you've got it all figured out and tell them how to do it. No one wants to accept feedback that way. And so I think what we've learned over the years is before someone can change, better understand where they are, what, what their thinking is, and then slowly bring them along. It's almost through a, a process of, of where uh, you get them more curious and interested uh, in your work and what you're trying to accomplish than just saying this is the way to do it. And that's kind of what we found over the years. You've got to get people engaged in the process. Now, you do find some champions along the way, and you find some people along the way that are not going to change. You say, let's move on to the next person. <laughs> there are people like that, too. Just curious to double down on this. Could you give an example of maybe something like this that you've seen, you know, that comes to memory where you've gone through this process again and you brought in unity, you created engagement and you let the process kind of dictate the outcome. And then 
it worked. Not in a manipulative way, but just by doing this versus like only with the stick. We spent six years trying to get the state of Tennessee to give us some money for a program called LifeSet. It's a program to help young people age out of the foster care system. Six years, we raised private money and not one dollar from the state of Tennessee. Finally, I had a gentleman that said he would give us a lot of money only if we matched it from the state of Tennessee. And long story short, we went and met with the governor and he agreed to match this funder's money because he saw our data for six years. And, and now the state of Tennessee gives us enormous resources. And every young person in the state of Tennessee that ages out of the false care system receives an opportunity to be part of this what's a program called LifeSet. And so, yes, that worked. It worked extremely effectively. Governor Bredesen was the champion of the state of Tennessee. A man named Clarence Day was the champion in Memphis, Tennessee, that, that came together to start providing initial funding for this program. We provide this program now all across the country and serving thousands of kids a day and receive enormous resources from the private sector as well as the government se- sector to support this initiative. So when you have your key advocates, was there a way to step back and figure out how can we make the governor understand the impact that we're doing and how, how can we make this work? So it, it takes patience, but it takes intellect. It takes strategy to do it all the right way, but to really try to make sure that there was buy-in. Interesting. There wasn't much strategy related to this one. Clarence Day gave us a seed money for this program in 1999. And every few years, he'd say, you've got to get matching money. And we said, well, we're raising matching money. And he would be frustrated that we couldn't get money from the government to sustain this model. So one day in 1995, 90, I'm sorry, 2005, 2006, he called me and said, Pat, I'm not going to give you any more money. I've asked you to raise matching money for the state. And you, you, you haven't done that. Hung up. He called me three days later. He said, Pat, I've changed my mind. I'm going to give you one and a half million dollars. And he never given us this much money before, by the way. But he said, but you have to raise match money. And I said, well, oh, we'll raise the match money. But that's a lot of money. How much time do I have? And he said, and he said, oh, no, you've got two years, but, but you can only raise the match money from one person. I said, who was that? He said, Phil Bredesen. When you get your when you get his money, you'll get mine. Hung up the phone. So that was the entire strategy. Mr. Day was frustrated that we had not been able to raise match money from the government. He knew we couldn't continue to sustain the program with his money and even the money we raised. And so he worked out a plan uh, to get Phil, Phil Bredesen interested. He responded favorably and came to Memphis, agreed to match the money. And since then, the government has, I don't know, we've received uh, three to $4 million a year every year over the last probably seven or eight years from the government. And we've raised that much money as well to support this program in Tennessee. It might sound like just a statement by you in like everyday life, but your psychological makeup is, it feels like it could be in a case study in Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. <laughs> For one, he calls you, <laughs> tells you, pulls a gift, hangs up the phone. Two, calls you then, you know, three, four days later and then tells you that. But my point, it sounds like just a Tuesday for, <laughs> for well, you. It wasn't just a Tuesday. I can assure you that the, the few days before he called me back, I was scrambling around thinking how in the world we're going to keep this funding going. But yeah, it was a, I mean, it was a historic moment. I mean, we had to ask ourselves, how do we get to Phil Bredesen now? It's not like we're on first name basis with the governor. Yes, sir. So just curious, like even on that principle, that example, what do you teach your kids or what do you teach your staff or what do you teach uh, boys and girls that you mentor, you know, about that kind of mindset 
you know, which it seems like you were instilled in that at an early age, but where you can be resilient the way that you've described this whole time up to this point with your career. Yeah, you know, my dad used to say we're little, my dad liked to fix cars. My dad could fix anything. I can't fix anything. He could fix anything. Back cleaners, cars, TV. We never had a repairman ever come to our house. Dad would figure it out. And he used to say, look, it's already broke. You can't hurt it. You just have to have the courage to try it. So, you know, what's it hurt? You know, I mean, what are they going to say? No, you know? So, you know, we've always got the, we always have the courage to try and we never, ever. And this is just how this organization, I think's mindset is, Hey, if, if we are committed to it and passionate about it, and we want to willing to go to school and learn about it and know that it can make a meaningful difference to a lot of people to impact their lives favorably, we can do it. And it takes a lot of small steps and, you know, we, we learn along the way, but, you know, we have, uh, it's not arrogance. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's more confidence and commitment. Uh, but, uh, but we, we seem to have that. And I guess it's a fair statement to say you can take that one example and that, that principle and that lesson that you just said and multiply it times about 250 or whatever the number would be. Oh yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, but we've got, We've got so many generous uh, supporters locally and nationally. That, and these are people that have been successful in their own businesses. And so I think that they, I think they appreciate organizations that uh, have struggled, but also have overcome a lot over time, not just uh, with young people, but also in their professional lives in, 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 in running an organization. What is LifeSet? It's, it's a program for young people who are aging out of the child welfare system. They're kids that have grown up in the foster care system. They turn, you know, 18 and, you know, they have no services and no support whatsoever. And this is a support. As a matter of fact, when I first met with Clarence Day in 1999, the first meeting I had with him, he said to me, tell me about youth villages. And I started telling him about our program. And he stopped me after a few minutes talking about our success. He said, I don't want to hear about your success. I want to hear about your failures. And I said, uh, nobody ever asked me that before. So I just kept talking about our successes and he stopped me again, just in moments said, no, 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 I don't want to hear about that. Who are the kids you're failing? And I told him, I told him about the kids that were over 18, that uh, basically our staff came to me in 94, 95 and said, these are the kids that aren't doing well, Pat, when they leave us. Our, six, our failure rate is much higher for older kids because they're not in the juvenile justice anymore, justice system. You know, they're going to jail. They're uh, uh, homeless. They're mental health hospitals, you know, they're dropping out of school, they're pregnant. And uh, so I told him that story and uh, he said, okay, those are the kids I want to help. And we couldn't get any help from the, from the government sector. We've been asking for years to help these older kids. He said, those are the kids I want to help. He said, how does anybody think a kid 18 years old can survive after growing up in foster care? So that's how we started the program. Is that a partnership or was that started birthed out of youth villages and not a partnership? That was not a partnership. That was Mr. Day giving us some seed money to learn how to help those kids. And we started looking at the best programs and anybody that knew anything about the services. And we found a man uh, down in Florida that knew a little bit about it and helped us start and develop a program. Yeah, that's how it all started. So there was an issue that you knew that y'all had that you wanted to fix. And it was a part of the process already. And he just was very direct and he had the money to launch it and he wanted to solve a problem there. And once y'all had the resources, y'all could go all in on fixing that problem. Yeah. And we've, we've got a dramatic plan for national expansion now. 
and we're expanding all over the country as we speak, expanding that program, not just providing the service ourselves, but licensing other programs across the country that are good providers as well. We're doing New York, Louisiana, New Jersey, Connecticut, Las Vegas, Chicago, all across the country. Yes, sir. Can you connect the dots a little bit while your work, the pain that children are in and what happens when they can recover, what the ultimate impact is, not just for their life, but for society? Can you connect the dots on both of those things? Well, first of all, <laughs> you know, these are people with tremendous opportunities. And so often people look at these young people and families as problems. They don't look at them as people that have tremendous opportunities to make a difference in their lives as well as other people's lives. I mean, to have someone that goes from maybe being in the child welfare system with tremendous baggage in terms of mental health problems, trauma, abuse, and neglect from all that, and, and suffer these kind of problems, to become a productive, tax-paying, vibrant citizen who, you know, gets married, has children of their own, impacts, you know, this economy and this community favorably, I will tell you, we, we do track ROI in some of our programs, but just in knowing many of these young people and their families and seeing them become successful, you know, it's just, it's just so comforting to see that. And, you know, we've served over 200,000 people now. So, you know, that's moving the needle. And, and we have outcome data and be happy to share that with anybody in the country. And it's also segmented from city to city and program to program. So, you know, we just need to provide more effective services, all of us, you know, that provide service to young people and their families uh, to help continue to, to, to move the needle. And I think sometimes it, uh, this is just an assumption or a guess through my own lens, but people would think those people, but there are things, a lot of things that we've talked about in this conversation that I personally relate to. And there's several people I know that I'm close, have close relationships with that just because certain conditions might have not been the same, but I think that's one of the things that I'm just, and I've known this, but I'm continuing to hear it right here. And now is what it's like for myself or what it's like for others as well. When you experience things that are painful, they hurt your brain's wired in a certain way and you can believe these narratives, these stories. And I'm not trying to reduce the significance of the pain of the specific men and women that you're dealing with, with youth villages, but I'm also trying to like bring us all somewhat on an equal playing field here because I know what it's like, the people that have come in, the professional help that I've gotten have poured into me and helped me see a better way and just how impactful that is to be on that same path that you've described that what the data that y'all are measuring for these men and women as well. Yeah, we all need, we all need support systems. I mean, None of us have ever, ever overcome anything by ourselves. I mean, it's, I don't know anybody that's ever overcome anything by themselves. Yes, sir. So I'm curious. I know there's a lot of years here in between just about the growth and the opportunity and the people affected whose lives really turned around because of your work. Where you're kind of at today, I'm curious about the impact that you and your associates, your team, all the people connected, all the partnerships you have, et cetera. What, what are you mostly focused on for the next five years on the impact that Youth Villages is going to make, especially with the recognition that you now have starting <laughs> as opposed to where it was uh, in the late 80s with what you articulated earlier? I'll tell you where our focus is now. Our focus is on Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee's murder rate is overwhelming. 
In 2019, we were ranked sixth in the city with the highest murder rate per capita. We had 32, 332 homicides last year and 38 children were murdered last year in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a serious problem. And uh, we're asking ourselves as an organization today, how can we have an impact? And we are rolling up our sleeves and putting together a significant initiative to help. What's that been like to have that clarity, especially since you've had so much expansion nationally, but to say that so clearly and succinctly and then double down right here where you started? We, we first started asking ourselves last fall, you know, while we will continue our national growth, but we have 3,300 employees, 1,300 right here in Memphis, Tennessee. How can we continue to grow so aggressive nationally? And like I said, we'll continue to grow. But while Memphis, Tennessee has serious problems, serious problems, and that other cities are, are making some advances in reducing violent crime, especially murder, but we see we haven't seemed to be making those same kind of advances. And what can we do differently? So we're focusing a lot of attention on that now. You were talking about the biggest priority that you have right now is Memphis. And yep. you said when I asked you for the next five years, what does that look like to you? And Youth Villages is in 23 states, 78 cities, 93 locations, close to 3,500 employees. So I'm curious, what's it like for you at this point in your career to have led an organization that started with non-employees, started here, where you took over an organization, no budget, the board, a lot of the board had turned over, and the previous two directors quit, and then another one was going to close up. They roll it up under you to where you're at today. But then now to be at this point in your life, to double down on your hometown, which is also a town that is a fair-sized metro area, but that has a rich history. It also has a complicated history and there's a lot of tension, but what's it like for you to double down on your hometown with a lot of data, a lot of experience on how to, and what it's like to create an impact? One, I rarely think about the past. That somebody you know brings up some story or you talking about it like this. Almost everything I think about is the future, not 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 yesterday or the past. So that's easy to get through. Secondly, you know, while we were doubling down on Memphis, we're collecting data and looking at all the challenges all over the country major cities are facing, uh, like the ones we were just talking about. And we we always ask ourselves, we want to build a program and initiative to replicate, to scale, to meet the needs, and to replicate. So we're asking that as well. But you know. Like I said, we have 1,300 employees in Memphis, and this is our home, and we'll continue our national expansion. But I'm quite sure somebody asked themselves, well, who is this organization from Memphis, Tennessee, coming, telling us or, or, or giving us some support or helping take our kids and families when their own city has got their own challenges? And so at least we're going to be able to say, look, we are working intensely in Memphis, Tennessee to help improve uh, the lives uh, of all the citizens of Memphis, Tennessee, especially those greatest impacted by violence and trauma. And so uh, that's kind of where we are with that. And from your viewpoint, doing this work in Memphis, doubling down on Memphis, how do you see the opportunity when you run that throughout the rest of the United States in other cities, other locations where they have similar problems, but how there's a lot of opportunity that can be applied through data and through experience and through success? As I've asked myself a lot about leaders in the community, 
the first thing that we should all think about is making this a safe place for people to live. I spent 18 years traveling to Honduras doing mission and volunteer work. I know what it's like to live in unsafe conditions, and I've seen the worst of the worst. And it's amazing to me in this day and time in a city like Memphis, Tennessee, that it, it's so unsafe in so many parts of our community. And we have got to ask ourselves, where can we have the greatest impact improving the lives of people? And safety has got to be first. Safety has got to be first. And of course, that means not being abused and neglected and emotionally traumatized, but it's also got to be just keep yourself alive and, uh, and the people around you, people you care about. So, you know, the deaths across the country are overwhelming. And 2020 was a horrible year, but 2019 was, was a horrible year too. And we have got to ask ourselves as citizens of a country in 2021, how can we make this a safe place for kids to grow up in? And if we can't do that, we're not very good stewards of our communities. Yes, sir. I can't remember us hitting this head on, but why is the work that we've talked about throughout this whole conversation, why is that directly related to crime? You know, people have such conditions that everybody wants to have some money. Everybody, everybody wants money. And so if, if a young person does not have an opportunity to earn money, you're just going to find they're going to turn to crime. And crime inc- impacts other people adversely. It drives everything goes on in the community. High crime rates, more police, uh, more hospital staff to take care of people impacted by crime, more, more people in the court system. Have you ever been on jury? You've been to jury duty and seen the thousands of people in that big room, the expenses involved in that, everything drives it. And how do you see this playing out for the nation at large? And why does this matter? Very few cities have put together a comprehensive plan. I think very few cities have really taken this head on other than policing from what we've seen. But, but very few cities have created long-term impacts. I remember one of the board directors asked me the first time I brought this up at board meeting, he said, well, Pat, how long is this initiative going to be? And I said, forever. He said, what do you mean? I said, this is not a five-year plan. This is a forever plan. Because what we looked at cities, they'll move the needle, then they'll take the resource away and their focus away from that initiative. Crime goes back, murder rates go back. This is something that you can never, ever turn away from. And that you know, you can't just say this happens in one segment of the community. I don't care about that segment. We all have to care about every segment of this community and all the people in this community, regardless of race, regardless of, you know, their their, uh, their level of, of income, uh, their education level. We've all got to wrap our arms around and say this is one community. We all need to see how we can take care of everybody in this community. And there's, if, if you drive to certain areas of this community, and most of us don't drive to these areas in the community very often, you're shocked at the living conditions and what's going on. And we've got to be able to, to lift those people up, lift those communities up, because it's not just about, you know, you, you can't just say we're going to help stop violent crime. We've got to clean up these areas. Uh, we've got to make sure some of the blight is taken care. We've got to make sure there's businesses that are successful. There's health care. There's mental health care. There's good school systems. All of this stuff has to be working together to move us out of this state of violence. We're in. And what happens if this work doesn't happen? Well, one, I have 100% confidence it will happen. It's not going to happen overnight. We're going to learn a lot, a lot of lessons along the way. It's going to take time. It's going to take years. It may take a decade or two. You know, you're going to have parts of the city that are horribly impoverished. Uh, you're going to have people that are, do not uh, have the same opportunities of getting a good education. 
of getting a good job. Uh, you're going to see healthcare costs go up. You're going to see police care costs go up. You're going to see the, the issue of racism is going to get even worse than it already is because, you know, many of the affluent areas of the city are the ones that are, you know, successful and communities with such challenging conditions have jobs and have meaning and purpose in their life that's not centered around maybe not living past the age of 22 or 23 or spending the rest of my life in jail. And we've got to change that. And, and that's got to be through helping people find jobs. It's got to be through helping people get better education. It's got to, you know, be, you know, helping people have hope and meaning in their life and purpose. Yes, sir. You've talked about this earlier, some donors, some relationships, and I've heard you give public praise or public gratitude to key people that have been with you along the way and been with your team. I'm just curious. It seems that it's not something to take for granted to have people that are in your corner that believe in you, that make that call on your behalf. And it seems like there's a lot of men and women out there right now working very hard for causes they believe in, they're passionate about, and not everybody has that. And so I would imagine, again, just a, an assumption here, but that's something that means something to you. I'm just curious, is there anything off the top of your head when you think about your career up to this point where somebody believed in you, somebody saw something in you that maybe if you, you seem like an optimist, but even if you were down, that really helped keep you on the path and keep you moving forward to where you can look back with a lot of gratitude. Is there anything specific that comes to mind? There's been a bunch. Of course, I've heard, I mentioned Bill Key early on, but a man named Jim Pickle with uh, work for Methodist Health Systems in 1983 came on our board and chairman of the board was the one that really saw us through the merger. Tremendous support. A man named Spence Wilson, uh, the oldest son of Kimmons Wilson, met him in 1982, led a capital campaign in 1984. You know, he's really the first, I guess, person with, you know, resources and connections in our city that I'd ever met before. You know, I never met anyone like him before. Uh, I, I look back and he was just a kid too. He was 42 when I look back, <laughs> think about it. And of course, Mike Bruns, I met Mike you know, 20 plus years ago. They just, you know, just had a level of enthusiasm and, and passion and, and not just a personal commitment to young people, but a personal commitment to helping an, an organization uh, that was, you know, just kind of finding our way at the time. Uh, of course, Jimmy Lackey is our board chair now. Brian Jordan was my board chair before. Uh, with first, uh, Horizon Bank, Johnny Pitts before that. I mean, I've had some great board chairmen over the years. Of course, I mentioned Clarence Day, local philanthropist, and the Day Foundation board. I mean, those men, you know, have been extremely supportive of us over the years. I mean, those people have made a, you know, a, a true difference in our work. And what do you think when you look at their life, the people that are willing to write that check or make that call? or show up for you, what drives them to stand out to where they can be so involved or provide such a contribution that was so meaningful to you and youth villages over these years? Well, I think all these people identified have, you know, helped many organizations, not, not just youth villages. I think they saw, I think they saw uh, an organization that, that had the, the passion, but didn't really have the expertise or the experience and, and how best to move forward. We really didn't. I mean, as I look back, you know, I always thought I wanted a lot of money in the early days, but what I really needed was a lot of advice and counsel. <laughs> That's what I needed. I would have just spent the money on something that didn't make really much of a difference. But thankfully there were people like me, the people I named that did come along and give us, give me advice and counsel and support and guidance and direction and 
helped us keep from, you know, getting out of our lane, so to speak, and what we were best at doing. So you're saying that passion mattered more than some of these other skills because you were able to figure that out by staying the course and learning along the way and then also being open to these relationships that saw that in you and wanted to come alongside and support you. Yeah, these men, you know, they had they had more broad experience than we did about, especially running a business. I mean, most of them did not know a lot about working with kids. They said, look, I can't tell you how to fix an emotionally troubled kid, but, you know, I can't read a balance sheet. You know, I uh, I can't help you, you know, forecast that budget. I can't help you maybe structure your organizational chart. I can give you some feedback about particular people in your your, your team that might uh, be able to help you differently. Or, you know, I can't help you solve that problem. I had a similar problem like that. I and mean, that, that's the kind of stuff I need help with. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't know anything about management or business or leading people. And these people all, all had, you know, much more experience and education as well in business and, and finance and accounting. And, and some of them have raised money before. So they knew what were some of the, you know, the, the key elements in building a relationship with the, with the philanthropist or what they cared most about to present that in a case to, to make the best pitch to get them to consider a donation. When you think about your own data set and all the families that Youth Villages has served, if you just had to maybe pick one or think of one, if you asked that family, if there was no Youth Villages, what would have happened? What do you think they'd say? I've asked a few kids that before, and I've seen kids interviewed by other people and, and what they've said. And everything from uh, in jail or I probably wouldn't be allowed today. You get a lot of comments like that. And what's it like for you personally? I read that you're 40 years in and uh, it doesn't sound like you're slowing down. I've heard that before, but I'm just curious, why are you so engaged now? And, you know, what's the impact that you want to be a part of for the next several years? You know, I'm just excited today as I was when I came here 41 years ago and I still lay awake at night thinking about how to do things differently or worrying about something I didn't do well or uh, I still think about it on weekends. I still read and uh, still ask others for advice about how best to go about things. I mean, I, uh, you know, Gary Shorb is on our board now and I was calling him recently asking for his thoughts about something. You know, I, I, I still have the same level of passion and commitment. I think I have a, a little more patience in some regard, but in other regards, I, I've lost some patience. <laughs> but I do, I, I hope the board will keep me around another eight or 10 years as long as I'm healthy and, and doing what I you know, should be doing to, to move this organization forward and, and having a, a favorable impact on the families uh, and community we work with. Yes, sir. Last question I got. What are the things that you feel like you're going to need, Youth Village is going to need to really create the impact in Memphis that y'all want to create? I believe we'll have to dramatically increase the number of staff we are working in our community-based programs in the community, whether it be 100 or 500 people, I don't know. I know it'll be a lot of people in the community. We'll have to build much stronger relationships in the community to, to, to uh, more easily identify the families and young people that are helped the most. We'll have to build better relationships with government leaders, county, city, juvenile court, DA's office. We're going to have to help support other not-for-profits that are also working effectively in this community, uh, not just provide them expertise, but maybe the, the resources they need to help expand their programs and services. We're going to have to continue to identify uh, other cities in the country that have uh, had a, a, a big impact uh, on improving uh, their communities and make them safer and better for everybody. So those are some of the things we're going to have to do along the way. So this is just another example of something that 
is about to start or is starting, but you're going to have to bring people along the way. Yeah. And look, we've got to be able to understand the capacity of the problem and be able to scale the services to be able to meet the needs. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for carving out some time with me this afternoon. I've had a lot of fun talking with you. Sam, you ask great questions. You're, you're a good listener, buddy. I've, I've, I've been on a lot of interviews. But nobody's stopped me and gone back to something they heard in the conversation as much as you did. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast. Podcast.